and welcome to the first ever episode of The Classical Circuit, the podcast that deep dives into the intricate world of classical music and all that comes with working in it. I'm your host, Ella Lee. I trained as a pianist and after a journey involving teaching, artist management, concert programming, I am now a radio music producer. Each episode, I'll be joined by a brilliant guest from the music world to discuss their best career high, their worst career low, and other things that show a different side to the one that you might see on their websites. Well, this is all very exciting, isn't it? My guest today is Christian Thompson, who is the artistic director of the Orchestre de Paris. Uh, Before that, he was the head of artistic planning for the Swedish Radio Symphony and Radio Choir and the artistic director of the Baltic Sea Festival, all in Stockholm. He was also head of artistic planning in Lyon at the National Auditorium Orchestra. And before that, he was at Verbier Festival. And before that, he was an agent working with really big artists like Joshua Bell, uh, James Galway, then Harold. I really enjoyed my chat with Christian. Uh, We recorded this back in September and he just had some really interesting things to say. You know, we spoke about what excellence means in music, that favourite buzzword, to someone in his role. We spoke about age and whether that's an important factor or not, especially as it pertains to performers. Christian spoke about uh, what goes into curating a season-long concert programme. He was just very open, very thoughtful, and the thing that struck me the most was that he clearly just loves music and loves his job a lot so it was a pleasure and yeah I really hope you enjoy Christian hello and welcome thanks for having me now look there's nothing more cliched than the words stellar career but you've done pretty well at forging one for yourself because you've spent your whole uh, professional life thus far working with some of the best orchestras that the industry has to offer. So how would you describe your relationship to classical music? Um, I was accepted into a a choir in St George's Chapel, Windsor when I was eight years old and we sang three hours a day for five years uh, from the age of eight till 13. And at the end of that, it was kind of in the blood and it has been ever since. And that unbelievable training, not only the training to sing, but also the training for excellence, it it stayed with me. And then I went to a bigger school and I realized that I wasn't as good as everybody else at playing. I played the piano a bit, I played the organ a bit, but I loved helping them to become the best that they could be by organizing concerts or, or encouraging people to come and hear great artists, even when I was at school. So um, it's all I've ever done. Gosh, you really hit the ground running from day one, didn't you? How did you end up in that choir? Was someone in your family musical? No. My father could play Keep the Home Fires Burning on the piano pretty badly. My mother knew nothing about music at all, but I had a voice. And someone suggested, why doesn't he try for the choir? Because it's free education. If you get into the choir, you don't have to pay any school fees. So I got in and... It was amazing. It was amazing. God, it sounds amazing. Mm. You mentioned that word that is always being thrown about, excellence. What does excellence mean to you? Oh, it's a really good question. I think it's about artists being the best 
they can be, being the best version of themselves, working incredibly hard, working so hard that then they can be free because that's important. And also remembering that they are there as as performing something that's written down. And so they are representing uh, the way they play, uh, what's written down by a composer. So it's also about um, authenticity. So authenticity is very important because there are lots of famous musicians who go out and do lots of things that weren't written in the score because it looks good. And um, they play very well. But for me, excellence is a combination of of being true to the score, being true to yourself, working incredibly hard, and then at the end, finding a way to communicate to a public. I didn't answer your question, but but all in all, when you have all of those things, that becomes excellent. Mm. Do you think that it's possible, truly, to be objective about excellence, given what you've just said? Let's take someone like yourself, for instance, um, artistic director of a major orchestra, obviously having a lot of influence over the artists that will come to work with you. Can you observe someone who's playing, singing, whatever, doesn't align with your own personal tastes and still say, yes, they are the epitome of excellence? Or is there always going to be a subjective element to it? I, I have a different problem with that. that. I've not been to a concert in 30 years when I don't look at it with my professional hat on. Mm. In fact, my wife and I, a year ago, uh, here in Paris, we went to hear the King Singers singing. I had no reason to go except for pleasure. And I spent uh, an evening actually not thinking about work at all. But anytime I hear a violinist or a pianist or a conductor or an orchestra, I'm always thinking about it with what isn't going right, what's, you know, and not being able to switch off but I'll give you one example. There was a boy, there is a boy, a Korean boy called Yun Chan Lim, oh, yeah. who won the um, Clyburn competition a year or so ago. And um, we wanted to work with him uh, on a tour of America next March. And we booked it and everything. And, and the video of him on YouTube is incredible. But I went here and play a recital now at the Fondation Louis Vuitton here. And it was remarkable. I mean, you just forget where you are and what you're doing because it was so fantastic and it happens very rarely that you get totally taken away in a way. So it doesn't happen very often to hear something that's truly excellent in my mind because, as you say, you get too subjective. Mm. But there's a lot of really, really, really good music making. Last night, my orchestra played Mahler's Third Symphony and on the whole there was a lot of things that were excellent. Yeah, I bet. And also that piece, I mean. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay, I'm intrigued. So when you are curating a program for the coming season, for example, mm -hmm. where do you even start? Because obviously, even at the very apex of the performing industry, mm. which is the kind of level we're talking about with you and your orchestra, it's still, as you said, a surprisingly large pool of artists, like this abundance of talent, you know. So regardless of personal taste, there are a lot of talented artists out there. So what do you prioritise when you're choosing who to invite to play or to conduct? For a start, I don't think there are a lot of excellent conductors. 
I think there's a real shortage of really, truly excellent conductors. And that's the number one most important uh, person that I have to find every week. Our music director, Klaus Makala, he's a Finnish conductor. He's been with the orchestra three years nearly. He's very young, um, although we don't talk about it anymore because age doesn't matter. He is unbelievably good. Um, and he's one in a generation. And if you have that person as your music director, it's very difficult to find uh, people that are as good as that. And there aren't that many. It was the same when I was working in Sweden with Daniel Harding. The orchestra would say every week after a conductor had been, yeah, he was good, she was good, but not as good as, as our music director. So that's quite a big challenge to find people um, who will challenge the orchestra in the way that they want to be challenged. So you, so what, what are the questions that we ask? So the most important is to have conductors. And I've booked conductors now until the end of 25, 26 season. That's pretty much done because they book at least two, two and a half years, three years in advance. And then when we talk about repertoire, the most important piece is the symphony or the big piece in the program. And generally speaking, uh, we find a way to, to agree on that. And then the soloists, there are quite a lot of good soloists, but we also have a hall that sells two th that seats 2,500 people and we do two concerts. So I have to sell 5,000 seats a week. And, you know, I, I can't have you, Ella, coming to play the accordion because I wouldn't sell any tickets because nobody knows who you are. I don't know if you play the accordion, but you know what I mean. I, I can't program symphonies by Christian Thompson, even if I'd written one. So there has to be this balance between finding a big piece, finding a conductor, finding a soloist, and at the same time, being creative and doing new music and doing things that are a bit off the beaten track, you have to find a, a kind of balance. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. Mm. Okay, but this is really interesting. So firstly, age. You said age doesn't matter. What did you mean by that? Because youth is still put on this huge pedestal which you know fair enough it's always going to be impressive in certain ways when someone very young is clearly very talented but you also can't deny that with age comes life experience and especially with certain repertoire which is more emotionally complex for instance perhaps someone that's a little bit older than I don't know 18 would be able to bring a deeper understanding it's just different I don't think I'll give you two examples. Klaus, who is technically, humanly, creatively, artistically as brilliant a person I've ever met. He, he's an amazing conductor because he goes on the stage and he just does his job. He doesn't pretend to be something else. There's no diva. There's no. He just does his job and he's so passionate about music. On the other hand, there's a, a conductor, Herbert Blomstedt, who's I think 96 now. Um, he had been the music director of my orchestra in Sweden um, and we became quite close. And I've done quite a lot of interviews with him. The first week when I came here, when I was appointed here for the job, Herbert conducted Brahms 3 and Brahms 4. And of course, it's completely different because he's 96 years old and I've booked him for the next two years. And he has something different to say. There are imperfections physically because he can't show everything extremely clearly, but the spirit of it. So you could listen to Klaus conducted Brahms 4 and Blomstedt conducting Brahms 4, and you would have two completely different pieces. But one isn't worse than the other. They're just different. And that's the variety of it. I would love, and, and we've talked about doing it here, to have the same piece played twice, 
in the same program by different people. And you can have, for example, you could do a Beethoven symphony and you could do the first half without any vibrato, original instruments, trumpets and trump, whatever. And the second half, a kind of modern version. And people can listen to the same piece because the piece stands up to being listened twice in an evening. And people can go away thinking which parts of which they touched them more or meant more or historically was important to them. So it's not about age, you know, it's just about having a real vision. And, you know, Yun Chan Lim, I don't know, he's 21 years old. Maria Joao Pires, she's playing in the uh, festival in the hall this weekend, and she's more than 80. And they're both very, very great artists. She's a very great artist. He's a really, really good artist. (laughs) That's not a criticism, by the way. It's just that he hasn't got that yet. I mean, he hasn't got the status yet. No, look, it's just interesting because you do run a world-class orchestra and I'm always curious to hear thoughts on this matter from people that play a large role in the mainstream concert circuit. Um, I like what you said about it just being different. And whilst I personally agree with you, I know that a lot of people don't. So it's it's always an interesting topic. I, I think when you talk about young people, uh, I did an interview uh, this summer with Wynton Marsalis and... I I said to him to be a little bit provocative. Don't you think that young people are less curious than you were when you were young? And he said two things, which was really interesting. First of all, for me to be curious, I had to go out and find stuff out myself because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have access to information on demand. If you wanted to go and listen to a recording, you had to order it and it would go to the shop and you would have to, you know, you couldn't have everything at the end of your fingertips. But the second thing he said was, this world is a pretty shitty place that we've given to young people. The, 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 the wars and the climates and the violence and the pornography and the disrespect and the celebration of, of billionaires. And the, he said, it's pretty awful. And he says, I don't judge people for the way that they lead their lives because we've given them a really bad situation to exist in. And it really touched me that because I thought it was very open. He's somebody that talks a lot about politics and social issues and climate issues, and you know he's lived through a lot. And yet he says we are to blame for the situation that young people are left in. This got nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I think the challenges of a young person now, with everything at their fingertips and and the world in the way it is now, it's tough actually. So none of that was my words; it was his. But I think it's important. That's very profound. That's uh, that's really cool to mm. me, that. So there's no age, there's no barrier to age in what I do. I, I think that you're absolutely right that the majority of conductors that come to us are older uh, because the Orchestre Paris historically doesn't invite kids and they have a, an experience of working with an orchestra like mine because an orchestra like mine needs a particular kind of leadership. But age, it's, that's not a huge question. Hmm. It's been some time now since you've been based in the UK, hasn't it? Yes, happily. Happily. (laughs) Nonetheless, I'd imagine you're aware of what's happening here in terms of lack of support for classical music and the arts in general. Um, Something we're all trying very hard to mitigate, by the way. But for you, since moving to Paris and taking up your current role, what have you observed about the appetite for classical music over there? The concert hall where where we 
give our concerts where I work is the Philharmonie, uh, which was built eight years ago by Jean Nouvel. It is the most shocking building in a really dodgy part of town. And we have the whole organization. We do 500 concerts a year in lots of different spaces. And for the Orchestre de Paris, we have a ticket sales of 85%. We make an effort to invite young people. And people come to the hall because it's a destination, because the building is so remarkable and so incredible if you get fed up with the music and you've got this incredible space to look at. But the, the building is almost 100% public funded. And there are, I would say, eight orchestras in France that have the title national, like uh, Lyon, Toulouse, Lille, and the government puts their money where their mouth is. I used to work in Lyon and the building, the concert hall, and the orchestra, completely funded by the, by the mayor. And that's a decision. It's a choice. I, I can't imagine Mr. Sunak uh, on his list of important priorities sees that very high. But my God, he's got a lot more challenges than that. But of course, it's always ever been here. And it's the same in Sweden. I used to work in Swedish Radio Symphony. It was 100% government funded. And there's an appetite for music. It, my worry is that education is is lacking. You know, if people don't know by the time they're 18 to have listened, to been exposed to a Beethoven symphony, how will they then pick up a Beethoven symphony later? I think it was ever thus, but I think at the same time, it's worse now than it's ever been. My little boy of three years old goes to school every day and they have a piece of music every day. And Mondays is classical, Tuesdays, jazz, Wednesdays, rock, Thursday is French and Friday is whatever else the teacher wants. And uh, every single day. And my daughter had the same. She was in the same class with the same teacher. And my daughter has Alexa in her bedroom in the mornings and she listens to music. And this morning she said, Alexa, play music by Luciano Pavarotti. She's six. (laughs) She doesn't sit and listen but she has an understanding of it. She pretends to sing like him, some songs she doesn't like, but she does that because she has a teacher who defends music. And at her age, that's all we need. Of course, my kids are special because they get me playing this stuff morning, noon and night and their mother. (laughs) Do you understand what I mean there? Yeah, of course. It's not a big deal that, but it's so easy to do and it's so powerful. Mm. I think that does make it a big deal, though. You know, the fact that it is such an easy thing to do, and yet it has the power to change everything about the situation. Mm. There's a a song in the second week when my daughter was at school. She came back and she said, today we listened to a song by Amy Winehouse called Rehab. (laughs) And I'm not sure the teacher really know what it meant. And we played Rehab for, for a week. Great song, though. Love, Amy. I've never heard it before. So yes, now, yeah. So that's just a regular school, not like a specialist music school? Just a regular public school. And it takes 15 minutes of the day. You present Charles Aznavour. He sings a song. And at the end of the thing, in their their cahier, in the book that comes back, it lists what the pieces are. Because she says, play that music at home. So that it makes a link between school and home, which is also very important. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. That sounds fantastic. 
Let's all move to France. <laughs> no, look, can we uh, can we go back to something you said earlier about balance? Yeah. And I suppose this ties into what we were talking about a bit as well. You know, we have so much music and we have all these masterpieces that have been loved for centuries, you know, Beethoven, Schubert, etc. And we also have so much new music that's coming up all the time. And a lot of the time it's been specially commissioned. Do you face any challenges in terms of finding that balance between older and newer music? Like, do you have to be ultra clever in the way that you program contemporary stuff? Or do you find that your audience is quite open to whatever you give them on a plate? The the orchestra has traditionally had a reputation for uh, commissioning new music, and we continue to commission new music. There are two symphony orchestras, two other symphony orchestras in Paris, the radio, uh, the Orchestre National de France and the Orchestre Philharmonique de Radio France, and both of them, because of their public service, like BBC equivalent, uh, they have more of a mission than we do for new music. Our, our audience is quite conservative, but the hall is not. So, in fact, since the orchestra moved to the hall and is now owned by the hall, I think that we can be more daring and I also know that when we do that we don't focus so much on ticket sales we focus on diversity diversity in terms of music but listen if I have Luciano Pavarotti singing in the second half I could program LLE symphonies in the first half (laughs) and I would still sell out so there's a way that you program things to ensure that, that there is something that helps because there's nothing worse than going to my hall and there's 500 people in listening to a new piece. There's nothing worse. There's no atmosphere. And the amount of work that the musicians have to do to make it work, we have to find out that it's about balance, just what we were saying before. I'll give you an example. Next week, uh, there's a really interesting young conductor, Elin Chan, who's uh, she's from Hong Kong. I think she lives in Amsterdam. I've worked with her in Neo and Stockholm. I think she's great. And um, I like to do the programs directly with the artists. I don't like going through agents. I, I love the agents, but generally speaking, the artists know more about repertoire than the agent, and I'm somewhere in the middle. So we talked a long time about what she would do for a program, and of course, we started at the end, and she's going to do Rimsky, Korsakoff, Scherzer, which she's done a lot, and I like it that a conductor comes to us to do a piece that they've done a lot because then they know how it goes and they don't have to, you know, they're free in a way. So then she said, I want to bring an Austrian percussionist called Martin Grubinger, and he's going to do the French premiere of a piece by an Icelandic composer called Daniel Bjarnason called Inferno, 25 minutes. We won't sell one ticket for that piece, except maybe percussion freaks, but basically we won't. So the program is Scheherazade, Interval, Inferno, but I had to put something at the end because I want the public to stay. Mm -hmm. So Inferno... Um, underworld, so we're going to do the Can Can Suite at the end, or Offenbach, and and the whole reason is that you it's a kind of play with Inferno and but it's also something that keeps the public at the end, and we do a piece by a living composer. Ticket sales are shit next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good for you for taking but the risk, though. We, but you can see why we do it. I mean, we could have just done a nice Mozart concerto and sold it out. That's not enough. Musical diversity is important to you then? Diversity in in all um, meanings of the word. And equality. 
your best career high was working in Sweden at the beginning of COVID. And I'd love you to tell the story, please, Christian, because it sounds really special. So we moved to Sweden in uh, April 2018 and I was on tour the last week of February, uh, one concert just after my, my son was born. And at the end of this concert it was Fidelio with my choir in Sweden and the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, the most amazing cast. And at the end of this concert, we all looked at each other and thought, what's next? What's going to happen? When do we see each other again? When do, you know, what happens? Because this was the last concert when there was a full public and we all went home thinking something is on the horizon and none of us knew what it was. So COVID arrived. Um, we sent home the public. We shut our doors. But we worked for Swedish radio. It was the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. And in Sweden, there were no rules. There was no lockdown. There was absolutely no social distancing rules because the Swedish mentality is that you can't make anyone do anything that they don't want to do. And it's almost enshrined in their... Um, it's more than law. It, it, it's the Swedish way is that people can express and do whatever they want. So we thought a lot about what we would do and we decided that we had no choice to keep playing. Um, Sweden is a country that gets very dark and in March it was very dark still and there's a huge listenership for the radio because people up and down the country would listen to radio a lot. So we decided that we would keep playing and we played every Friday night for the whole of Corona. And the Swedish people or the Swedish people that I worked with, we would know a year and a half in advance what the schedule was. We'd know when they would have coffee, the musicians, and when this artist would arrive and what the planning was and whatever. But we didn't know even a week before what we were doing because we can invite you to come and play your accordion and the day before you were due to come, the country you're in changes their rules and you can't leave. Uh, of course, for the first few months, we just used people in Sweden, uh, conductors and soloists. But every single week, we had to find a program. Uh, we had distancing on the stage. We only had 50 musicians, so we couldn't do big pieces. We, we spent our whole life looking at the instrumentation of every piece and saying, could we do 51 because that one has an extra bassoon? Or, But on top of that, we could adapt our programming to the public mood. So we could be very happy. We could be very sad. We made a point of explaining why we were programming particular things. But on the 2nd of April, we did a concert for Swedish television. No live concert in the whole world was happening on April the 2nd, 2020. And Janine Jansen, who lived in Sweden, a violinist, played Bach. And then Marlin Bustrom, who's a Swedish soprano, sang the Ave Maria from Otello with the Desdemona at the end. This unbelievable, painful, painful music representing how some people were feeling that couldn't see their family, that couldn't travel, that couldn't do whatever. And then there was a, a very famous Swedish piece, choir piece in the second half. So our choir sang, distance, but the choir sang April 2020. And now I can't remember the name of that piece. But it was so beautiful. And we felt a responsibility. We felt that people were listening to us because we had a job to do. And we broadcast every Friday. We filmed every concert, streamed every concert so people could see it. And in June 2020, when the world was slightly waking up a little bit, we did a staged opera. We did Don Giovanni's stage in our hall. It was empty. There was no public. 
And we made a made-for-TV Don Giovanni with six of the greatest singers in the world, the cast, an amazing director, and it was absolutely incredible. That was the first staged opera since COVID, no doubt. And um, Peter Mattei, who sang Don Giovanni, is here in Paris now, and uh, doing Don Giovanni, in fact, in the opera here. And I saw him on Sunday, and he said, I'd never been more scared because it was the only live opera in the world. And he said, you know, the figures that we had watching that was almost a million. Wow. Because people, the appetite, everybody wanted to see an opera. So little old me in my little old office in Sweden, casting great pieces and people actually watching it and listening to it. That was amazing. Not easy. Not easy. We had a baby born at the end of February. Um, None of our friends wanted to see me because I was working with 150 people every day, understandably. There was a lot of people that hated that we were planning so late and expecting people to learn a diff difficult symphony. We'd tell them on Thursday and they start on Monday um, and hated being put in this kind of situation that could compromise musical quality. But we all felt this responsibility to, to exist. So there you go. I'm the only person that will ever tell you that story, that we were at, at one point the only orchestra, the only choir, and then the only opera that existed in the world. In the world. Gosh, it was already over three years ago, but I've just been filled with hope. Amazing. It, it really did make us... I mean, I remember Daniel Harding came for two weeks. The first week he did Sibelius Four, which is the loneliest, saddest... But Blomstedt says there's hope, nevertheless, in the first week, Sibelius four, and the second week, uh, Don Giovanni. And he had been locked down for three months, more or less, Daniel. Uh, I mean, everybody suffered. Yeah, nobody can believe, you know, in Paris. if you live in Paris, by definition, you have a tiny apartment, you could have children, whatever. It must have been awful. I'm so lucky. We were so lucky. I mean... You said you all felt this collective responsibility, which must have been quite heavy. But at the same time, it sounds almost liberating creatively in the fact that you were doing this week on week. I don't know, I can't really think of another scenario in which you would get to do that. You know, choose the programme every week and adapt it to the public mood. It, the, the, the nicest thing about it is that we could become a little bit journalistic. So... Oh, I wish I could remember the name of that piece in, that we did because it's all, it's called, in English, it's called God in Disguise. Fetla to Good, it's called. Don't ask me for the composer. And it's all about everybody around you could be a, a saint, basically. And that was the storytelling at that moment that we could say that everybody's there to help each other. And we made that a part of the broadcast that we programmed this piece because we want people to realize that every single person next door, across the street, in your school, in your, you know, whatever, there was always somebody that could be God in disguise. And if I had my way and if I was brave enough, I would have a, a week a year with my orchestra here where we wouldn't announce the program. And we have a very loyal fan base. And I would say, just come and we'll make something that's all about what's happening now. It, it, could, be, it could be anything. The problem with it is it's got to be really, really, really good. I would love to program more journalistically, more with the mood. I also want to commission Donald Trump the opera. 
And I want Donald Trump, the opera, I want Donald Trump to be played by a countertenor or a castrato. I got the whole idea in it. It's all ready. I can tell. I can <laughs> yeah. So that was that. And it was amazing. And there were so many, everybody risked to do that because you had to, people had to go on the bus or the train or they had to go and share the, the canteen and the whatever with, with other people. And it was a risk when there would have been much less risk if you'd stayed home because we didn't know. And as it happened in the end, the statistics for Sweden would, as they always are for Sweden, right in the middle. Have you experienced the same sense of purpose since then? That's a really good question. No. And I don't think I ever will. And I don't think it matters because I think we have a role, an important role to play. But in that moment, there was a real sense of purpose. I'd never heard it said like that. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm touched by that. Mm. I guess, as you said, you still have a role now. Everyone does. It's just different. Yeah. I suppose you now fit into the wider ecology now that things have been somewhat restored. But at the time, as you said, it was literally just you. I remember when uh, at 9-11, by the way, symphony orchestras in the United States are suffering enormously since COVID. Yeah. Okay. In terms of ticket sales, it's really, it's really sad because those people will be difficult to replace there. Um, in Just after 9-11, the ticket sales between January and May of major American symphony orchestras and, you know, even Indianapolis, Cincinnati, the kind of ne next level down, those symphony orchestras had a 20% uptake in ticket sales. And I think people felt the need to, to have something close to them, with them, and music is one of those things. That I find very beautiful. That's why to do to be journalistic. You know, at the time of, the, of when the war started, I would have loved to have done a week of programming to represent how we should be feeling or, or what we should be recognizing as important. Interestingly, the week after the, the week after the war started, we were supposed to have Valeri Gergiev conducting my orchestra. And clearly, um, I, he wouldn't have come anyway. We told him not to come. So we, we changed the program that he was supposed to do, and we did Shostakovich Fifth Symphony in the first half, which is somehow a kind of fake news hidden complaint against the regime. And then the second half, we did Beethoven Five which is basically about victory. So the fact that Gergiev didn't come gave us the chance to tell a story in music. Shostakovich, five, Beethoven, five. And it was really beautiful. I guess the thing about you saying that as someone that runs an orchestra is that there's, perhaps you don't face the same risk that a solo artist might, for example. If they were to do the same thing, they might then be accused of making it all about them. Whereas you're this big pillar that's there week in, week out anyway. So you can be like, yeah, it is all about the music. I mean, um, uh, Yevgeny Kissin, uh, he decides his recital programs two years in advance. He's a good boy. If everyone was like that, it'd be perfect. It's not very exciting that someone says, what are you going to wear in three years? It's not any, whatever. I don't think he thinks about what he's going to wear. And his recital program was Bach, Beethoven, 
Chopin, and then the second half was all Rachmaninoff. And then the war came, and he changed the Chopin piece to, um, I think it's F minor Polonaise, which is the most scary, bloody uh, piece of music in terms of Chopin, thinking that this was all about the Polish, the situation in Poland. And he just put that piece in, and everybody knew that he was making a statement against the war. Everybody knew that. And how wonderful that he did it. He didn't say it overtly. He didn't say, I've changed it for this. But everybody knew that that was what he was trying to to do, to make a, a statement. So, Christian, this is where we're supposed to talk about your worst career low. But uh, we didn't quite get there, did we? <laughs> I was actually, I was very touched by your honesty at how you struggled to come up with one because in your own words you've been very lucky in that you've loved every job that you ever had and when you when you did need a new challenge uh one just came up at the right time so firstly thank you for your honesty um I know you were hesitant because you thought it sounded a bit egotistical but I don't think that's the case at all I guess I guess at the moment there is so much focus on struggle in the industry and rightly so because unfortunately it is the reality for so many people however in that I guess we do forget that sometimes things just fall into place for some people which gives me hope I thought about it a lot because actually it would have been interesting to be here in the psychologist chair and you would ask me <laughs> questions and I'd figure out um, what I learned from that moment or not um listen I love music. It was the first thing you asked me. And I found a way to go to work every day for my passion. I, I'm close with a lot of very, very famous musicians who inspire me and challenge me. And I get to choose what they play, when they play it, where they play it, who they play it with. It's unbelievable lucky. And I work for an academy in Verbier, working with young musicians. I was an agent before that. Uh, music's been everything. I always wanted to work for an orchestra and that somebody was dumb enough to give me the job in New York <laughs> and then in Sweden. And every time when I was beginning to feel a little bit itchy that maybe well, I wanted something else, I was lucky enough that the right thing came along uh, every time. I don't. I think I haven't probably stayed long enough in each job, but but I've got quite a lot of children and and we needed that needed to be the most important thing. But I'm really I've been really lucky. And so uh, maybe everyone else has got terrible heart-wrenching stories about something that happened in their professional life. I don't have that. And I would have shared it with you if I had it. The other thing is, is that the, 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 the lowest moments, humanly or professionally, because this job it is 24 hours a day job. And I have 110 people in the orchestra. I have 100 people in the administration. I have all the artists all expecting me to deliver quickly and the pressure of that it's non-stop and it's not easy be pretty it's pretty windy at the top you know you have to reassure people because in the end we're making music we're not selling plimsolls um i doubt anyone's ever used the word plimsolls on your podcast <laughs> I don't think I've even heard the word plimsolls since i was in school right i don't know why it came plimsolls but in general, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. 
Why do you attribute the trajectory of your career to luck? Oh, just the right moment at the right time. I, I would never, ever say, everybody says this stupid line, and I really, really, really mean it. One day I'll get found out because it's just, it, it, I'm incredibly blessed. And um, the job in Lyon, uh, which was the job of my dreams to go and run an orchestra, to do the artistic programming from an orchestra. The guy that ran the orchestra was a friend of mine. And he called me and said, do you know anyone who could do this job? And I said, me, and I'll convince you. And we did it. And then when I went to Sweden, I had 18 interviews for the job. Was wow. that Sweden? Everybody needs to be involved in the decision-making. And then here I, I had like half an hour, no, a bit longer than that, but it was done very quickly. And that was a, an aside I don't know if that's very interesting, but I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm open. I'm creative and I have quite a good network. And I think, but at the base of it all, I'm very lucky because there's quite a lot of people that do what I do. Hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that answer, actually. Which part? All of it, all of right. it. I'm genuinely fascinated. And it's also interesting how after all your years of experience you still feel like you're waiting to be found out. Listen, this is a dream job and, and I got it and I'm extremely lucky. And all the things that we talked about before, all the ways that we program, the way that you work with the musicians, the way that you work with the soloists and the conductors, all of that is part and parcel of this job. It's the integral part of the job. And people have to have confidence in your ability to do it. If you stay in a job too long, or if you keep doing the same stuff, then people lose that confidence. And I imagine it can lo you lose it quite quickly. So trying to be fresh and trying to be new and trying to be innovative all the time is quite important. And also what's important is involving the musicians in those discussions, the musicians and the orchestra. So we haven't done it much since I've been here in Sweden. We did it every two weeks. But, but I'm trying now to explain to the musicians what my vision is who I want to see here, what pieces, what whatever, so that they go, okay, he's got an idea. He's, you know, there's an intelligence and then they follow you. So actually the human side, which isn't just about sitting at the table and deciding which Beethoven symphony you're going to do. It's about also encouraging everybody around to sign up to that vision. Just to be clear, my job as the artistic director of the Orchestre de Paris, every single person is waiting for me to do my job. Nothing happens without me. So the personnel people for the orchestra, the marketing people, the people that raise the money, the accountants, the stagehands, all the musicians, all the people who work in the box office, everybody is waiting to know what comes out of my or my hand. So the minute I say, okay, in December 24, we're going to do four concerts around Beethoven. I don't know why I keep talking about Beethoven. Everyone said, okay, if that's what's going to be, we are all going to adapt our role to that decision. So this is really the hub, my, my job, and that's quite a lot of pressure. Yeah. Do you ever get to switch off, even for an hour or so? So I've got kids. So yesterday uh, I came home at four and leave my phone at home and go and play football with a three-year-old for two hours, and it's wonderful. And then the holidays, I'm pretty good. But if you want to switch off, this isn't the job. Not Sounds really. like for you, though, it's worth the sacrifice. I can, I can tell how much you love it. 
Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's tough sometimes to, I mean, if the hardest part is that you have a family and you have a real life and this is all consuming. And sometimes that, that's a lot, but that's what you sign up for. And if you met people in the industry or you met teachers or you met doctors or they would say the same, doctors have probably got more pressure than I do. I mean, fewer people die when I program a concert than... Well, I'd hope so. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, now. Christian, thanks so much for chatting to me today and also for some really great food for thought. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been really nice. Thank you so much for listening to this very first episode of The Classical Circuit. And if you did enjoy it, it would be really awesome if you could rate, review and subscribe as this will help other people to find out about it. Uh, You can also follow us on Instagram for more updates at The Classical Circuit. And this podcast is also available on The Violin Channel's website, which is theviolinchannel.com. Thank you so much again and see you next time.